A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. I'm Danielle Yet, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I'm a junior member. We gather members of our ICS community here to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. This semester, we're tackling some big questions. We're asking our guests to talk about the themes of evil, resistance, and judgment as they come up in the course of their work, their studies, and their lives. I'm Mark Standish, and I'm also a junior member. Today, we're talking about the inspiration for these themes, 20th century political theorist and cultural commentator Hannah Arendt. Joining us in the studio is ICS president and senior member and resident Arendt expert Ron Kuypers. We'll welcome Ron back to the podcast in just a minute. Is there something that just irks you, that gnaws at you, that people just don't understand? For our first new segment, Here's My Thought, we're giving folks the chance to set the record straight on any issue of their choice, big or small, in five minutes or less. This week, it's my turn, so here's my thought. Animated film and television are not childish. Whenever fully grown adults like myself openly admit to having an ardent love for animation, the air fills with battle cries like, animation is for kids. I think this and statements like it make two mistakes that feed off each other. One mistake is a general tendency to dismiss childlike and child-oriented things as childish. Films or TV shows meant for children, so the argument goes, are dumb, fluffy, immature, uninteresting, frivolous, etc. While you can find plenty of examples of just that kind of animation, it is not strictly animation's problem. There are innumerable dumb movies and dumb shows, both live-action and animated, that don't take themselves seriously and don't take children seriously. We think kids want or need childish media that is loud, exciting, vibrant, and deals in oversimplified exaggeration. This is a derision of children and need not be the case. Claiming derisively that animation is for kids also perpetuates a second mistake. That is, the animation is a film or TV genre rather than an artistic medium. If you think of animation as a genre, the tendency is to then identify it by its lowest common denominator. That is, an animated film or show can't be as nuanced, so people assume, simply because it is animated. As a medium, though, animation allows for creative possibilities that other mediums do not. People can create a world from the ground up, Animation gives people the ability to both fixate and expand on isolated elements of a given genre, story, or idea, unburdened by the expectations of quote-unquote realism. Animation, therefore, has the ability to capture our attention in new and surprising ways. 
It also has the ability to potentially tell a more multilayered and suggestive story, where the visual elements echo, bolster, and nuance the narratival plot elements. Rather than continue in the abstract, though, I'll give a couple of examples of animation that I think accomplishes this. Indie films like Loving Vincent, which came out a couple of years ago, fully lean into animation as a medium. It is at once an homage to Impressionist painting and to animation's painterly roots. Impressionism and the first film cameras actually developed around the same time, and both attempted to capture the fleeting nature of time, motion, color, and light. Likewise, early animation relied on hand-painted stills strung together to create movement from one frame to the next. Loving Vincent merges both these techniques together with newer motion capture technology to imagine an artistic future for the medium by respecting its artistic past. A final example, films like Cartoon Saloon's The Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea use animation as a vehicle for reimagining what storytelling itself has the power to do. Both films are modern twists on traditional Irish folk and fairy tales. Both are stylistic marvels that hold up to multiple viewings. Both are heart-wrenching stories about how our stories are the key to seeing the world differently and to letting others in. And both are stories about how children, more often than adults, have the capacity to allow such change to happen and even to seek it out bravely. So animation doesn't only matter for children, and serious animation doesn't have to be overly serious. That is, it doesn't have to become quote-unquote adult animation. Simply because something looks cartoony doesn't mean it's dumbed down, and just because something looks photorealistic doesn't mean it's more mature or nuanced. As anyone who has, works with, or is consistently around children knows, distilling complex ideas and experiences into simplified forms is not an easy task, and the curiosity of a child can leave even the most intelligent adult at a loss. Animation then, even in its more exuberant forms, stems primarily from the conscious choice to simplify, but not to oversimplify, to focus on certain elements and to tune out others in order to draw out the elements in focus more strongly. Perhaps then we could all use a bit more animation in our lives. For our second segment, we at ICS are reckoning with the problem of evil, exploring possible modes of resistance, and discerning moments of judgment as a community. So we're asking our guests to talk about how these issues intersect with their work and lives. Today, we're joined once again by Ron Kuypers, who anticipates teaching a course on these themes in the spring. He's going to share his work on a rent with us and help us draw out why these themes matter. So welcome, Ron. Thank you. Happy to be here. So... How did you first come into contact with the work of Hannah Arendt, and why do you find yourself drawn to what she has to say? Um, I actually do remember the first time I came across her work, and its uh, I never studied her in undergraduate or graduate school. I was at uh, a bookstore um, in Toronto called Pages. It was a pretty decent academic bookstore. It doesn't exist anymore. It was on Queen Street. Um, Queen and John around there. Anyway, that doesn't matter. Um, and I was just, you know, in the philosophy section flipping through stuff and I saw Arendt's book, The Human Condition. And, uh, it's a name you've, it's almost, you know, even people who haven't read her have heard this name, right? And even back then that was the case. And I was kind of like, well, what's the deal here? And so I'm just flipping through the book and I go into the index and actually, you know, I'm not surprised now, but at the time I was surprised to see there's a whole series of entries on Jesus of Nazareth. I'm like, well, how does he fit into this book, right? So I flipped to those pages and I was kind of 
blown away, um, you know, just by what I found there. And then here's a philosopher who's, you know, not necessarily promoting Christianity because she wasn't, but actually listening to the message of forgiveness that Jesus mm-hmm. gives in, in like, you know, gospels like Matthew and saying that, you know, this is actually an important message and uh, that we can still uh, help us understand, uh, use to help understand the human condition today. Maybe I could just read the kind, just to give you a bit of the flavor. Uh, she's basically talking about uh, Jesus as someone who has particular insight into the human capacity for action, mm-hmm. which she defines not as just doing stuff, but as beginning something new. So whereas uh, philosophers like Heidegger were emphasizing being towards death as defining human existence, she was emphasizing human birth and the ability to begin anew. And so she sees forgiveness as something, as a form, as a paradigmatic form of action in that sense in which it interrupts a cycle, like say a cycle of violence or revenge, and releases a, a new possibility, right? So she says, the lifespan of man running toward death would inevitably carry everything human to ruin and destruction if it were not for the faculty of interrupting it and beginning something new, a faculty which is inherent in action, like an ever-present reminder that men, though they must die, are not born in order to die, but in order to begin. Yet just as, from the standpoint of nature, the rectilinear movement of man's lifespan between birth and death looks like a peculiar deviation from the common natural rule of cyclical movement, Thus, action seen from the viewpoint of the automatic processes which seem to determine the course of the world looks like a miracle. In the language of natural science, it is the infinite improbability which occurs regularly. Action is, in fact, the one miracle-working faculty of man as Jesus of Nazareth, whose insights into this faculty can be compared in their originality and unprecedentedness with Socrates' insights into the possibilities of thought must have known very well when he likened the power to forgive to the more general power of performing miracles, putting both on the same level and within the reach of man. Mm. So, um, you know, as a young philosophy student, to see Jesus compared to Socrates in such a favorable way, uh, I just, you know, that I, I gravitated toward that, I guess. But um, I put the book back and I didn't buy it <laughs> at that time, right then and there. <laughs> And kind of forgot about her for a while while I, you know, pursued my PhD studies. And uh, she, she never really um, factored into what I was working on or doing in the philosophy of religion. So it was only after uh, I finished my PhD and then I got this job at ICS where I had to propose a four-year cycle of courses. And I was kind of wondering what I want to teach on. And one of the cool things that ICS did at the time and still kind of part of the spirit of our pedagogy here is... Uh, professors will divide their courses between areas in which they're sort of experts and well-versed in and then areas of their own uh, uh, intellectual growth or what they want to do research on but don't necessarily know much about. So that's when I thought, here, here's an opportunity actually for me to really get into Hannah Arendt's corpus and teach a course on her philosophy. And, um, and I did that in my first year at ICS. I did a postdoc at the University of Toronto Political Science Department with uh, a woman named Jennifer Nadelsky is my supervisor, and she did her PhD with Arendt. She did a lot of work on judgment, political judgment, uh, the role of being formed in a community and how that shapes one's judgment. Um, she was particularly interested, at least in one great paper I read, in the ability of, even though you're formed within a community, if your community is doing something problematic, how is it possible for you to take a position that's still within that community but helps you come to to a judgment against certain things that community mm-hmm. is doing. And that was always, that was one of my deeper, deeper intellectual questions because um, 
you know, existentially growing up as a Christian and then doing work in philosophy of religion, that was one of the things I wanted to know about because I think it's really important for traditions to create this space within themselves for that kind of self-criticism and growth. So, so I decided to uh, do a course on Han Arendt and Judgment. And you can't really go too far into her thoughts on thinking and judgment without getting into her... Um, you know, her, her uh, reporting on the Eichmann trial in Jerusalem and Eichmann in Jerusalem. So that, that's the book's the first one we read, actually. And it's and it started as a series of articles for the New Yorker magazine, and then it sort of became a larger book with some postscripts and reflections on the controversy it generated. But anyway, so I think it was either in the fall of 04 or this winter semester of 05 where I taught that course, and we just had an amazing group. There was people in there who knew more about Arendt than I did. There were students who were like uh, sort of gone on to do biblical studies and who were really hmm. excited about what she was doing with the Bible. She had this really strong sense of spotting messianic, the messianic, uh, the idea of uh, kind of possible impossibility, like the quote I just read about action sort of has that flavor to it, right? So her voice just struck me as really fresh and uh, even courageous in some points, like she just says what she thinks um, and, you know, worries about the consequences later sometimes <laughs> to her detriment. You don't have that experience all the time intellectually, and so I think you need to listen to that when it happens. So, Partly, I think, is what I was sniffing out was that she had a hopeful uh, ability to spot mm -hmm. possibility where others only saw futility. What did you learn in that class that you taught the first time? Since that was kind of your goal of pitching the class to begin with, is that you were kind of learning alongside students. What was something you learned? Yeah, it was just <clears throat> going back into the memory banks a bit now, and I've taught the course, I think, Three more times after that. I had kind of this, uh, made the decision in my syllabus to actually conclude the course by going to a Christian theologian who was talking about the same things and using that as comparative kind of foil. But the class was so interrent, they came to me in midway through the class and they said, you know, can we take that book off the syllabus and just read more Hannah Arendt? And we ended up putting her PhD thesis, Love and St. Augustine, on the uh, syllabus. So mm -hmm. it was like, you know, crazy old eyes, yeah, sure, I'll mm. throw a book on the syllabus halfway through the course that <laughs> I haven't read yet. <laughs> um, but it was just that kind of group, uh, you know, so uh, I learned a lot from the students. I, I really do remember an ICS alumnus named Rachel McGuire who did her PhD at ICS. She was also reading Walter Brueggemann at the same time quite deeply, and uh, she noticed uh, something about Arendt's understanding of power that, uh, you know, it was related to an understanding of action, but... Um, and evil. What Rachel noticed was that Arendt has a very keen awareness. It might be attributable to her just deeply radical democratic uh, sensibilities, but that everybody has a certain share of power that they can keep or they can give up to other things larger than themselves for good or ill, right? And there's a responsibility there in each person to recognize that they have this power and when they're giving it up into the service of a larger machinery, right? So Eichmann is a Nazi functionary and a lot of people thought by trying to really understand what made him tick that she was letting him off the hook. But she was actually, you know, he's just a cog in the machine and all that kind of thing. Hector talked about this in the first podcast. But a cog is still playing a role in the machine. If a cog stops turning, the whole machine stops, right? Mm. So she has that sense of like even the most minuscule mustard seed-like 
part of a larger machinery needs to contribute to its smooth functioning for it in order to, for it to happen, and that needs to happen on mass. So um, I think one of her diagnoses of Germany, uh, you know, Weimar Germany, was that um, there wasn't a real strong awareness of your own power, or there was a ready, ready willingness to just give it up to this larger thing. So, and I think Rachel taught me that. Like that was something I wasn't really picking up until she started to make these comments in class about it. And then I was like, oh, wow, that is really cool. That is there. Yeah. Right. So that really opened up my subsequent reading. What is one thing that you find especially compelling about Arendt's views on evil, resistance and judgment in terms of what they offer social and political discourse in Canada and the U.S. today? You asked what's uh, one thing I find especially compelling about Arendt's views on evil. And I, I suppose I'm compelled by... Um, her sort of exploration of evil in Eichmann in Jerusalem, um, but compelling is not the right word. I think terrifying might be yeah. better. I'm yeah. terrified by it. Because I think there's a lot of people have a tendency to misunderstand what she's doing there, right? Um, she's not trying to, so she's trying, she goes to this trial, right? After the, the drama of kidnapping him out of Argentina, bringing him to the state of Israel. It's the first time where the new uh, Jewish state of Israel gets to try a Nazi, a pretty high-level Nazi official, and it's a show trial. I mean, it really, there's no two bones about it. Like, yeah. this is the state of Israel wanting to tr put the Holocaust on trial. And one of the sort of interesting things about Arendt is she resists those sorts of gestures, not not simply, not simply for any reason of any sort of hostility to Zionism necessarily, um, but because it's very important for her to have a grip on reality and the grip on reality there there is secured intersubjectively and we have to actually look at Eichmann and what he's saying on the stand and what he did and, and isolate his individual responsibility from the larger monstrous system that he contributed to right so she was always dialed in on on that and that made her really very critical of the prosecution's case against him because they kept over and over again trying to portray him as you know a really um like a monster, someone who's very calculating and is a, 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 a high-level Nazi henchman, you know, kind of thing. And that's, you know, I mean, there has been some more research since then that shows that maybe he did have some of those tendencies, but what she saw on the stand and what she felt she honestly had to report on was that what's more terrifying is this guy's pretty ordinary. He's pretty actually banal. He's actually just trying to get ahead in his job. A lot of the time he uh, has a curious inability to see things from another point of view, not his own, right? So he's going around, he's working in relationships with, you know, Jewish officials. Um, he's cooperating with them. He's starting to think, you know, he thinks they're his friends. They he can't figure out why sometimes they get mad at him. Uh, he's His answers are full of stock cliches and um, things like that. So, you know, at a certain point in the book, it kind of begins to dawn on Arendt that um, something like the Holocaust can be carried off by uh, an entire citizenry who have kind of, succumb to this kind of banality mm. um but not through any specific you know malicious anti-semitic intention that's one of the controversies controversial things she said so what you know so a lot of people thought she was minimizing the evil he committed by calling it banal but she was actually trying to describe how something like this becomes possible in the absence of direct sort of like there's obviously anti-semitism in germany and hatred yeah. toward jews and all this kind of thing but I think that um, by trying to understand him, not to forgive him necessarily, 
But to really understand it, she go, she will want to understand what it is in the human condition that can make us capable of these sorts of things. And I took a hard look uh, at things that people don't necessarily want to look at. It's much easier to say, that's monstrous. That's not me. I could never do that. And it doesn't make, it doesn't mean that we can all be, we're all little Adolf Eichmanns, right? I did an interview with Richard Carney and he was clear to make that point when I was asking him this question. It's, it's not that, um, we're all guilty. Um, she denies that, right? Like she, but, but what, what is he guilty of, right? He did certain things. Like in the end, she says the prosecution failed to make their case, but she gives her own verdict and she does say the death penalty is warranted in his case. Hmm. But it's because, not because he, he, because he was being tried for crimes against the Jewish state or the state of Israel. Um, and she's, or in the Jewish people, I guess, right? And she says, no, it's a crime against humanity. If you, Take it upon yourself to be uh, a willing functionary in a regime that has unilaterally decided that one group of people, one ethnic group, does not belong on the face of the earth. You've actually um, you 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 then willingly uh, willingly harm the plurality of humanity, and no one has the right to do that. So the the earth can actually not tolerate your existence. Because, you know, so, so that for that reason, he must hang kind of thing is kind of how the book comes to an end, right? So she's not trying to let him off the hook or anything, but she's trying to locate what's the specific issue here. Like, and, and so she, you know, um, so I, you know, I find that compelling and also terrifying in the sense that, um, you know, a lot of bad things are happening today, obviously, right? Um, I think sometimes we're too focused on the bad and we don't notice some good things that are happening. But uh, but again, there's that uncanny feeling that there, it's all happening through any lack of specific evil intent by some cabal of people up there, right? But we're consuming the Earth's resources at an unsustainable rate and polluting and uh, damaging the conditions for, you know, all life on Earth. Just through going through our everyday routines, <laughs> somehow we got to that, and that's what I find pretty chilling. Then, then her analyses become very powerful about well, what is my own power within that? Hmm. What can I actually? How are how are the batteries I have supplying power to this machinery? And can is there ways that I can actually withdraw that power? One of the interesting things she finds about resistance in uh, when reflecting on. Uh, German totalitarianism and, and other forms of totalitarianism is that when things get that bad, not participating, not doing something, not joining is a form of action, right? So, you know, and it sounds like cliche, but, you know, we can uh, reduce our footprint. There's actual concrete things you can do. Um, you'll, you know that you'll always be implicated in part of a system that's destructive, but you do. You don't. Ha you're not just completely powerless. So you don't have to just go. Well, just throw your arms up in the air. There's nothing we can do, right? Like it's that's where she really wants to. Um, she wants to interrupt that thought and say, no, it's within human power to act, to interrupt things, to start new things, and recognize that you have that power and don't give it away so easily. Could you provide an anecdote about a particular issue, event, political question, or moment in your academic career that Arendt's work provided you specific insight into? This is one of the great things I find about um, exploring thought and traditions that aren't your own, right? They can illuminate your own tradition and help you understand it better um, and more faithfully even, hmm. right? And I think that is a role she's played for me, right? So reading her work has attuned me more to things in scripture that hadn't popped out for me before, right? Um, 
I think well, Luke 17, verse 20 and 21, where Jesus says the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then after reading Arendt and her emphasis on action and possibility and interrupting things, I almost hear Jesus saying, you know, this, this good stuff, this good stuff that's coming, it's already all around you. Like the possibilities, the leads to follow are there. Like you just have to have the eyes to see them. So, you know, so I'm reading this secular German Jewish philosopher and getting a sharper sense of at least what I think is a, you know, a really good way to read passages like that. Um, to hear uh, what Paul says about the power of weakness, you know, the, the radicality and the explosiveness of the, of the New Testament, which he refers to, but also there's passages in Isaiah and, you know, um, a lot, um, all the Messianic passages in the Old Testament too that are kind of um, talk about, uh, you know, as a Calvinist, you get in a little scary territory here, but about the human power that Jesus says is available to you to go in the direction of life and not continue on in the direction of death. The, the other thing um, that I really like in her is um, she uh, her version of radical democracy is rooted in the strong conviction that no one is superfluous. And, I, and, and that's a really, uh, we have to think about that seriously because we go, yeah, 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 we should never treat people as means but as ends only in the Kantian lesson and all that. But we look around and political decisions are being made where people are just statistics mm -hmm. and, you know, um, all kinds of decisions are made where um, human life is basically uh, treated as expendable in a certain extent. And, you know, we'll make decisions about traffic flows and neighborhoods we're building and, you know, well, there'll be a certain acceptable level of carnage for the sake of economic, you know, mobility or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, her sense of... Uh, of action and what humans are capable of, you know, in the '60s when her students came to her for advice on what they should do when when the students were protesting. I can't remember if she was at the new school then or, or where she was, but it's an interesting anecdote in in one of her intellectual biographies. She said, "Oh yeah, you should make friends with the uh, union down the hall because they have a you know Gestetner machine, so you could maybe get you know your leaflets uh, photocopied for free." Hmm. Like she was just going to give practical advice and not because it's it's for the it's for the group this collective that's forming to decide what their course of action is going to be and and it's for them to hash that out together in their in their plurality, right? That's actually her normative. I think her normative sense of what political action should be like. It should be from the grassroots of people getting together and deciding amongst themselves amidst all their differences, what kind of a world they're going to build in common. And that the, the and no voice can, should be excluded from that conversation. It's interesting too, because like her words, especially when you think about uh, people not being excluded they come from direct experience of, of being excluded and like having to go through the bureaucratic red tape of like being an, a stateless person. Um, and I think that like being grounded in that way brings so much life to her philosophy. Yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, she never spent, uh, she got out of Europe before things got really bad, but she was held at a concentration camp in France, in Gers. She fled and and you know got out um in time but she was stateless for a while um yeah so she she does have you know and then you know was was transplanted to the united states and all that kind of thing so she has that she has a deep understanding of that kind of marginalization i think even if she didn't really suffer the full brunt horrors yeah. of the brunt of the horrors yeah could you leave us with a quote from a that stuck with you in your study of her and briefly explain why sure so um 
So in Eichmann in Jerusalem, I got to give this a bit of setup, but um, I mentioned before, I describe it as a messianic sense that she has of identifying possibility where others only see futility. And she has a very poignant example that she gives in Eichmann in Jerusalem. She compares two German officers. Um, one's named Peter Bam, and he witnessed the uh, mass shooting of Jews in Sevastopol. Well, basically, this is what he says about it. So he says, it belongs among the refinements of totalitarian governments in our century that they don't permit their opponents to die a great dramatic martyr's death for their convictions. A good many of us might have accepted such a death. The totalitarian state lets its opponents disappear in silent anonymity. It is certain that anyone who had dared to suffer death rather than silently tolerate the crime would have sacrificed his life in vain. This is not to say that such a sacrifice would have been morally meaningless. It would only have been practically useless. And then here's kind of the key sentence of his. None of us had a conviction so deeply rooted that we could have taken upon ourselves a practically useless sacrifice for the sake of a higher moral meaning. So that's kind of, you know, so one of her big questions in here is why did so many participate or why didn't, why didn't more people resist? A witness named Abba Kovner gets up and he talks about a different German officer named Anton Schmidt. He's now honored as a righteous Gentile in the Yad Vashem archive in Israel. So Anton Schmidt's a really interesting story because there's almost kind of a reverse banality to what he's doing, right? Um, he's kind of, Jews, Jews find out he's kind of friendly. They start asking for help with little things, and it just slowly escalates because if they, they, he gets a reputation as someone who will never say no. So it gets to a point where, you know, he's, He's doing things like giving them false identification papers. Uh, you know, I'm not sure the exact list, but it, it kept growing and growing into where he was actually commandeering army resources like trucks and things to help Jews escape. And like, it's really like, and and the more he does, the more conspicuous he becomes. And eventually, he's caught and tried and and executed for for his crimes. Right. Um, so. Um, you have a witness up on the stand talking about this person's, you know, sacrifice, right? And uh, so this paragraph always jumps out at me. She says, During the few minutes it took Kovner to tell of the help that had come from a German sergeant, a hush settled over the courtroom. It was as though the crowd had spontaneously decided to observe the usual two minutes of silence in honor of the man named Anton Schmidt. And in those two minutes, which were like a sudden burst of light in the midst of impenetrable, unfathomable darkness, a single thought stood out clearly, irrefutably, beyond question. How utterly different everything would be today in this courtroom, in Israel, in Germany, in all of Europe, and perhaps in all countries of the world, if only more such stories could have been told. So when she reflects on the comparison between these two examples, right, they're both German officers. They both don't like what's going on. One doesn't worry about whether or not his actions are futile. The other one thinks they are, right? So why does one see possibility where the other sees only futility? And that's where she's saying, and she's saying it's because the, the story of Schmidt can be told that we know that what Peter Bam's saying is not true, right? She says, rather, it was the fatal flaw in the argument itself, itself, Peter Bam's argument, which at first sounds so hopelessly plausible. It is true that totalitarian domination tried to establish these holes of oblivion into which all deeds, good and evil, would disappear. But just as the Nazis' feverish attempts from June 1942 on to erase all traces of the massacres through cremation, through burning in open pits, through the use of explosives and flamethrowers and bone-crushing machinery were doomed to failure, so all efforts to let their opponents disappear in silent anonymity 
It's a quote from Peter Bam, were in vain. The holes of oblivion do not exist. Nothing human is that perfect. And there are simply too many people in the world to make oblivion possible. One man will always be left alive to tell the story. Hence, nothing can ever be practically useless, at least not in the long run. It would be of great practical usefulness for Germany today, not merely for her prestige abroad, but for her sadly confused inner condition if there were more such stories to be told. For the lesson of such stories is simple and within everybody's grasp. Politically speaking, it is that under conditions of terror, most people will comply, but some people will not. Just as the lesson of the countries to which the final solution was proposed is that it could happen in most places, but it did not happen everywhere. Humanly speaking, no more is required and no more can reasonably be asked for this planet to remain a place fit for human habitation. Uh, and, I, and I think like I actually have some power to do something. And as long as we continue to think that um, and keep that power and, you know, and use it for life-giving rather than death-dealing paths, which is a, you know, that's where the judgment and the discernment comes in. Um, then there's still hope. And that brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drinks we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Mark, what's your pleasure? Well, uh, this past weekend was Super Crawl in Hamilton, which is basically a festival of art and music um, that they shut down the downtown core of Hamilton, and you can walk around and listen to different bands and go into different art galleries, etc. And there's usually art installations and stuff like that, and... Um, uh, and lots and lots of food trucks. So in, many, so food, many trucks. food trucks. In fact, that like you couldn't really walk down the middle of the street where <laughs> the food trucks were. You were just like stuck. Everyone was trying to walk, but no one could move anywhere. It was kind of surreal. People wanted their pierogies. They wanted their pierogies, um, but I didn't indulge. But what I did indulge in was the headliner um, was Bahamas, and I know his music, but I've never seen him live. Um, and he's an amazing, um, guitar player. And also he, he I was worried because his music kind of like low key and chill. So I was wondering like how he's going to carry the, uh, performance for however many people were there. We are near the front. So it's hard to say, uh, there's usually like 20, 20,000. Yeah. So even in like the main area, there were a few thousand, and then it extended beyond. Yeah, it extends extends way back beyond the sound booth yeah. and stuff. Um, so, but like he held everyone's attention because um, he's funny um, and he's a really good um, guitar player, uh, and he uh, his band is really tight. So uh, they were really good. I'm very impressed. I was also impressed. I was there, so I'm gonna like ride along on your what's your pleasure and confirm. It. <laughs> Consider it confirmed. Uh, one of the most amusing things, though, was something that we cannot convey via podcast. No, I didn't even try. <laughs> you should try. <laughs> For those who can't see, which is all of you, was this weird little like shoulder and head bop funky move thing that I don't even know the guy's name. Bahamas Man like did consistently throughout the throughout the show and that I've been doing like ever since just kind of wanting to walk down the street and like 
funky head bop mm. everywhere. One of my major gripes with like uh, bands <clears throat> is they're always like introducing their bandmates, but the lead singer never introduces themselves, which is usually like, oh, if it's like the Gareth Inkster experience or something, then you know the lead singer is Gareth Inkster. But for Bahamas, I know that's not his name, and I don't know his name. I would like to actually know his name, and I got everyone else's names down pat because he kept introducing them, but I don't know who he is. So Maybe his name is Bahamas. Complete change of pace is my pleasure, which I feel like maybe pleasure is not the correct word in this instance, but it was very good. Anyway, a couple weeks ago at this point, uh, I went to the Toronto International Film Festival for the first time ever, and getting tickets to anything was an ordeal to begin with, but managed to get a ticket to Terrence Malick's new movie, A Hidden Life, and very much in the style of what people apparently call the new Malik. Um, this very expansive, like naturalist love affair of a movie. It's beautifully shot and set in Austria. And Austria is like this, the landscape in Austria is just like fairy tale, magical, crazy mountains that shouldn't be there, but are somehow. Um, and it's the story of this Austrian farmer as World War II breaks out, basically, and how he decides that he can't go along with it and has this like quiet life of resistance that ends up getting him into a lot of strife. <laughs> um, but one so, of the... So thematic, so fitting for our topic So this year. fitting, yeah. It's like we planned it. um but one of the things that i realized that i did enjoy about the movie is i well going into it i realized i have never actually seen a terrence malick movie before this i've only ever heard of them nonstop, so many times um but had never actually sat through an entire movie myself so this was the first time i'd done that um but one of the things that i enjoyed about the movie was and I'd heard people talk about his style as like he does a lot with like light and he loves like this kind of excessive almost amount of light in his filming, which there is a lot of that. But so much in the movie was very like tactile and like how it was shot and even like the sound quality, like the sound quality was like tactile, like you could feel it. And there's a lot of like dwelling on like just kind of like moments of like human touch and like kind of running fingers through like the fields of grain and all this stuff and i don't know it was just very it's probably the most like tactile movie i've ever seen (laughs) just a strange thing to say but it was very good it's worth a watch that's it for our show this week we hope you'll stay tuned for the rest of our episodes this semester If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can visit us at icscanada.edu. If anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can find my co-host as at Beware the Yeti and me as at Mark Standish. You can also follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, subscribe to us on iTunes and consider giving us a review. It helps people find us and keeps us on the radar.
most importantly, tell your friends.